Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Tom Thornton, the founder and president of Hedge Fund Telemetry. Tom was previously a portfolio manager, senior trader, and technical analyst at a hedge fund that had $5 billion in AUM. 2022 has been a crazy year for markets, but this has been Tom's kind of year. He is up 52% this year. In this episode, we talk about Tom's focus on market sentiment. We also got his assessment of the markets heading into 2023. He explains why the market is nervous and why we haven't seen a true capitulation in the markets yet. We also talk about things like position sizing and Tom's Tesla short and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with my friend Tom, and I think you will too. Tom Thornton, founder and president of Hedge Fund Telemetry, and my good friend, it is great to have you on the show. Welcome. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Um, nice to um, reconnect, Julia. Um, we met uh, in 2014. That's right. It's been just over eight years, and I trust Time that you. I trust that you're doing well. And you know, it's been a crazy year in the markets, and I just kind of want to hear from you. Like, how has this year been for you, Tom? Well, it's been my type of year. I, I love volatile markets. Um, it brings opportunity on both the long and short side. My background is um, a portfolio manager and trader for um, a long short hedge fund uh, that generally we used to be biased negatively uh, or short uh, the entire time of our existence. Not anything like a an activist type short fund, but uh, we just found ideas that we could exploit on the short side and then found spots that we could buy um, on dips. And it's really been um, a great year. I, I'm I'm overwhelmed with uh, and, and a little surprised on how well it's been. Yeah. Um, I would love to just kind of hear um, from you, like you, you take a, a different approach. Um, I think you do more uh, sentiment when it comes to trading. Like, can you help folks understand like what you do? What is kind of your approach to um, okay. markets? Okay. Well, I, I'm, one thing I will say is um, starting in January, I said, look, this is going to be a very tactical year. I identified that this was going to be a bear market uh, pretty early. Um, and what I tend to, my focus is not just necessarily on one type of indicator, but I have a blend of a bunch of different things that I put together. Uh, I'm noted for being a specialist with DeMarc indicators, which uh spots exhaustion, uh, trend exhaustion on either the upside or downside. Uh, I also look um, at short interest data, and I find that it's very, very important to show how people are positioned. I also track uh, market sentiment really, really closely using various uh, sentiment polls. Uh, some I don't use, uh, that a lot of people use, but uh, it, it it's also something that is important. Sentiment is not necessarily a trigger. If it gets really overdone on one side, whether it's bullish or bearish, it doesn't mean it's going to end. That's more of a condition. So I look for triggers and I use market internals and the DeMarc indicators and short interest and put call ratios on individual stocks to really give me a good idea of, of risk, whether it's on the upside or downside. Got it. Um when you talk about, uh, well, there, I guess there are a few things I want to uh, bring up with you. Um, when you're talking about sentiment, you said sentiment's not necessarily 
a trigger. It's more of a condition. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's it's actually um, it's actually very similar to like what, what what an RSI does when when you're you know it goes from zero to a hundred. And some of the polls that I I use, they pull traders, and they're not necessarily they're not calling Paul Tudor Jones. They're calling the average trader in various markets and currencies, commodities, bonds, and stocks. And they're asking, are you bullish or bearish? They're not asking, are you neutral? Because I think that's sort of a cop out. Uh, but when you have a trend with market sentiment above 50%, uh, you have the majority of people that are bullish. And it's not that they're wrong. It's they're when you get to these extreme levels of bullishness, and then you have a trigger, it can that's when you want to capitalize on a turn and on the downside. So for example, in March of 2020, on I think it was the 24th of March, uh, the market sentiment indicators that I used showed 3% bulls. Now that's really extreme. Uh, we also had a lot of DeMarc buy signals, um, exhaustion signals, which basically said that when these started to line up together, Oh, throw in send or uh, put call ratios on individual stocks and indices. Uh, everybody was buying puts, so we had the potential for a squeeze in that regard. So I look for those types of opportunities, and this has been a year that we've had a lot of opportunities, uh, both on the long and short side. And ironically, I look at my trade ideas, and I have every single one on our site: the open and closed ideas, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but I've traded more on the long side this year, which I, is a little surprising to me, than the short side. But my sizing, which I really stress to all of my subscribers and um, clients that uh, you can't size too big uh, a position at the beginning. So my personal preference of what I, I show people is I don't buy something with more than 5% of my assets my capital. And a lot of people will think, well, you're never going to make any money on that. Uh, but you do just fine. And being that I've made more money on the short side, my sizing has been larger on the short side, uh, partly because I've had more conviction. It's a bear market and things drop pretty quickly when they do drop, uh, as we've been watching over the last week. Uh, but my longs have been smaller sized and I've done just fine. Um, with a 2% sized position. And there's times where I'll have 30 to 40 stocks uh, in the portfolio. And yes, um, it, it also, truth be told, uh, I can be very emotional, just like everybody else. And I know everybody says, I'll take emotion out of the whole equation. I can't do that. Uh, having a smaller size keeps me, uh, keeps my anxiety level a lot lower. If I'm wrong, I can... I, I have the ability to add more up to 5%. If I'm, you know, dead wrong, I'll, I'll sell it and take my risk, uh, risk off. But that's generally how I approach the markets um, and what's worked this year, especially. Yeah. I think that's a really good lesson too about the position sizing and like you kind of give yourself that framework of 5%, whether it's a long or a short, and I guess you work within that. Let me just ask you real quick. Um, where did you learn that and why the 5%? Well, everyone's process evolves over time. And 
I have been doing this for a number of years and I've just found that that sizing works well for me. And um, I, I, I know people that have told me, you know, you should size up bigger if you have more conviction and it just, it, it doesn't work for me. And I've found that when I've had too much of a position on, um, I'm up at night, I'm more worried about it. Even if I'm right, I'm worried about, you know, a drawdown off of the gain. So it's just allowed me to relax a little bit more. And there's a, there's a thought process also. It's like, I don't need to make money if I have my sizing down to levels where I can sleep at night. I just, I want to, I need and want are really important because I want to make money. I want to make money. And if I just follow my process and, and, you know, generally relaxed with the sizing and the idea uh, it works. So yeah, my process has evolved over time and that process has evolved by learning from mistakes and sizing too big is generally uh, one that, um, I can look back and say those are usually when uh, when I've made made mistakes. Yeah, again, it's something that's important for all of us to to learn. Um, you were talking about um, how this year you had um, you saw more opportunities on the long on the long side than the short side, and I think you found that to be a little bit surprising to you. Um, why why were you able to find more on the long side? Well, the setup I. I that that occurred and it's it happened in March uh, and it happened uh, in the summer and in June. It happened recently at the end of September. Uh, first of all, market sentiment and I track uh, the daily sentiment index and we have we've built charts off the raw data on our site. And so when we had market sentiment down under ten percent, sometimes I think it hit five percent a couple times as well. That was a very 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 low. Uh, level and we've done studies that show that when it gets down to those levels, it doesn't generally stay that low. It'll get a bounce, uh, and then we had just tons of demark signals. And I not only track just the S and P or the Nasdaq 100, but I run screens within the S and P 500 of all the, the components, and we had just an overwhelming number of buy signals from the demark indicators. And so when I see power in numbers of a lot of different ideas that are exhausting on the downside, and that that's not necessarily saying that, you know, smart buyers are coming in. It's that the sellers are exhausting themselves on the downside. So that's what we tend to look for. And it, 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 a lot of times um, we'll be off by a few days and, um, you know, just generally using these indicators for over 20 years and, the process that I've built, I, I know that um, I can afford a, a few days and I can afford um, a little bit of wiggle room on my PL. But that's generally um, how we have found more long ideas. And I don't trust the market at all. And some of the bounces have been shallower than expected. Some of the bounces have lasted a little longer than I expected. And that was the summer bounce uh, lasted longer. I sold out of stuff a little early. I shorted stuff a little early, um, but I had conviction of knowing where we were um, and other things that sort of kept me um, in the position um, that I originally, you know, felt was the right 
the right side to be on. Gotcha. I, I take it that you you're you're a trader. Um, like what kind of time frames? Like what are, kind of time horizons do you kind of give yourself? Right. I I'll say this. I'm not a day trader. Um, I, I've been I've tried to short do short term trading. Um, my sweet spot tends to be uh, somewhere around ten to fifteen days. No, no. Sometimes a little longer. I have some ideas that I've had on the on the on my portfolio that I've had for longer. I've had Tesla on my portfolio, but I'll trade around it. So, for example, I had a five percent max position from around two eighty. I took some. I took one percent off uh, last Friday. I know it's not that much, but it's nice to ring the register and give myself the ability to add more. So I will trade around positions. I might be. I was 5% long or short uh, the SM, SPY and QQQ. I took half off on Friday. A little of that is because it's the holidays. There's liquidity issues that can go one way or the other. Um, and I, I'm tired. This has been a very exhausting year. And it's tiring even when you've been right or you're in a winning position. You just, I, I needed to, to, you know, pull myself back a little bit. And I was, way, way too net short. And so I raised a bunch of cash. I'm still net short. And if it worked, you know, the market continues to go down, I'll do fine. Um, but I don't need to be a pig at, at this point. Got it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, given that, you know, it's the end of the year. Um, you're tired. I think everybody's been tired after uh, 2022. Um, since you look at market sentiment indicators, what would you say is your assessment of the markets, you know, right now, uh, as we wrap up the year and heading into 2023. Right. Well, I'm, I'm busy writing down all sorts of notes because I, I'm trying to, you know, understand or have these scenarios, the, the, the positive or the negative scenario. And I think it's going to be one of these um, types of years that we're, we're ending the year uh, much different than when we started the year um, on a down note. Sentiment is very weak. Uh, market sentiment was in the 90% level last year at this time. And that was a very high level. We had exhaustion signals um, that said most likely going to reverse lower. We just had more exhaustion signals that said we were going to reverse lower uh, last week. Uh, a lot of them triggered. One triggered on the day of the CPI, which uh, put in a high and uh, reversed down that day. So that was a, that was a great signal. Uh, so I, I think right now that the market is nervous and the, I'm looking at also like the one month or 20 day lows on a different, a lot of different sectors or stocks. And those numbers are starting to increase as well. And I like to say that nothing motivates sellers more than when they start to see red on their screens and the further down we go, the more selling we'll, we'll probably see. Uh, but we haven't seen true capitulation all year uh, in the markets. And I think that that will be something in 2023 that that we'll see. We'll see people and funds and all sorts of, you know, the, the retail investor uh, will start to give up. They haven't given up this year. They have been putting more money into the markets every single week. We, we track the data. It's pretty amazing. And they're holding a lot of garbage stuff that may never go back to those old highs. 
So it's just going to be a matter of time before they start to see something better. And they may say, you know what, I'm just going to sell this arc. It's not working. It's never going to work. I don't want to be there. Or they'll sell half and they'll they'll move it on to something that's that looks more promising. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Like um, you're talking about like, you know, how um, investors, um, you know, from kind of all different facets, uh, including the retail investors, they haven't given up at this point. We haven't seen that true capitulation. Um, why do you think that is? Or what is what are you kind of seeing uh, within the data that might reinforce this? Well, credit investors have capitulated. That's that's clear. Uh, you've seen um, just an absolute bloodbath in the bond market all year. And you've seen the outflows in, in bonds. They're starting to come back a little bit, which I, on this, this bounce with bonds, I think uh, it is a little oversold. So I think that's that makes sense. But I think that people still believe, and I've never been in a market where people continue to believe in assets that just don't make any viable sense fundamentally. For example, um, I'll, I'll bring up Tesla, I'll bring up ARK, I'll bring up crypto. Um, there's incredible enthusiasm still <clears throat> for these, these assets. And people want to believe and they look at the old returns of where they were and they they don't want to sell. And there's been a mantra, you know, the HODL mantra, you never can sell, uh, hold on to everything forever. Bitcoin's going to a million. You know, I just feel like a lot of people were duped on that. And I, the way I'm looking at crypto, and I'm not necessarily a, a crypto bull or bear. I, I don't have any bone to pick in, in here. I track it. Um, I track uh Bitcoin and Ethereum on my charts. And, you know, we, the, the mark indicators caught the top in Bitcoin the day after the, the top last November, um, actually a year ago, November. But I just, I feel like there's another shoe to drop. There's all sorts of noise with uh, after FTX and now you have Binance and all. I just don't know what the next shoe is going to be to drop. And when we do see, the true capitulation in that, that might be a good opportunity. And there might be regulation that, that comes into that space, which I think would, you know, I think everybody would applaud and say, okay, fine. This is a maturing type of asset and growth in an asset, uh, not necessarily the price growth, but growth as far as becoming an asset um, takes a lot of change and change can certainly be, as we've seen, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind explaining like what, when it sounds like you might be expecting a, a capitulation at some point, maybe, maybe we get that in 2023. Um, or I don't know if you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, but what is, what kind of happens in a capitulation? Like, what does it look like and what would it mean for broader markets? Well, one thing that happens is in capitulations, um, there's really no safe place to hide. You know, you can say, "Oh, I'm going to put my money in gold. Um, I'm going to put it in Bitcoin." You know that there's there's sometimes like the traditional hedges that people can say that that's where they want to hide, or they put it in real estate. There's no place to hide when the markets capitulate because everything is com- you know combined uh, on a macro level with like let's just say very basically like a chain. And if one link of that chain breaks, then other things break. And there are so many different funds out there that. Um, that own everything, that stocks, bonds, crypto, commodities, whatever, 
and and we're talking like big ones like the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and others. Uh, what could happen is that they just look for anything that's liquid that they can sell and take risk off. And that is generally what a capitulation looks like. It's it's scary even for the bears. And back in 2008, nine, when I worked at my previous hedge fund, we were short a billion dollars worth of financials and CDX. And we had all, all of the, you know, the same components that the well-known uh, funds, hedge funds that were in the big short, you know, those are friends of mine. Uh, we, we had them all too. Uh, we just didn't get in the movie. And um, it was scary because you watch these things go down. And, you know, it was also really scary because I had friends at a lot of the, you know, I had all the banks and they were just terrified because their net worth was dropping and you're on the phone with them. And it just, it's terrifying. It's scary for everybody. And it's scary, not necessarily just because of your, you know, your portfolio is down or this and that. It's scary because you're worried about financial system. You're worried about your job. You're worried about uh, things moving forward if they ever can get better. And I've been through a few really nasty crashes and that is generally what happens. What I tend to do when that happens, and I tell people this all the time and, and th this for non-professional investors, when you see the people on, on the news and it hits the news at first, um, the first thing, oh, the markets went down, uh, the market's crashing. And you see people that I'll never be in the market again. I went out, get me out, everybody get me out. You know, that's what happens um, at capitulation levels. On the other hand, I'll also say something about market sentiment that uh, happened uh, a little over a year ago is when the GameStop, the meme stock, craze happened. I was getting calls from all sorts of people that don't necessarily trade the markets. Uh, my daughter called me. She's in, she's in college. She's like, dad, what's going on with this GameStop? You know, all these boys in my, um, in my classes are on their phones trading it and doing all that. So when you start to see the, the average person take notice of some trend that is by far extreme and we know it's not going to last that's a pretty good sign of capitulation that was an upside capitulation uh so i i would i would say that those are the things that i i would watch for i mean you had if you remember gamestop they were like the it was the first story on even the local news here in new york and that you know they talk about that um and uh, you know unfortunately a lot of times when you get to those extremes, people start to lose money because they jump onto one of those extremes or, or on the other side, when it's going down, they'll sell at the lows um, and, and do the absolute opposite of, of what they should. Yeah. Uh, you're right. And it, it was a local news story because I did a local news hit for WRAL in Raleigh, North Carolina during the GameStop uh, uh, meme stock craze. Um, so if do you think we might see capitulation next year? Is that something you're looking for? Was that my that, that was the question? Sorry. Yeah. Yes, do you, I, I you, do. Okay. I do think we will. Uh, and and you know, you also have the Fed that that is. Well, let's just say that the Fed is doing what they need to do to control inflation. 
Um, and generally you have the loudest people that are anti-Fed are the ones that benefited from the Fed's actions for the, the past 12 years uh, of, of moving higher to be the ones that, that are complaining uh, about the Fed. It's when um, the Fed stops raising rates. Um, I think we'll get, you know, bounces on that, the, the hope that the Fed's going to, you know, inject liquidity into the markets. I think that what's going to happen is it's going to take a lot longer for the Fed to completely reverse and pivot. It may not be in 2023. And that I think is going to wear people down. And capitulation is also when the buy the dip people just can't buy the dip anymore. They've moved on. I'm not trading anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm you know, get me out of the market. And that is very possible in 2023. I mean, look, I'd rather have the Fed bang the hell out of the market, raise rates very, very fast, cause the market to get whacked, move lower. Inflation, if the market was a lot lower, um, would it would certainly be you know under 5% on the CPI, maybe even the four level. And I think then the Fed could start uh, reversing their policies, but they're, they're taking their time. And it's not necessarily that, you know, 75 basis points three times is not taking their time. But I think that they come back with comments, uh, Powell especially, that says, you know, well, we're, we're data dependent and we're going to, you know, downshift in the pace of rate hikes. I think that gives the market hope. And the next big thing this year is going to be earnings. And I think that's going to be the big story along with recession. I think that's the next big problem the market's going to have to face. Yeah. I definitely want to ask you about earnings and uh, the prospects of a, the next recession, but just to kind of like fo focus a little bit more on, on the Fed, um, what I'm hearing from you, like, don't, don't expect any sort of cuts. Um, next year. Some people think they might. I don't know. I don't even know if people are still talking about that, that there will be some sort of pivot or a, a pause of sorts. What are you kind of looking for from the Fed or what are you kind of thinking about their moves? Do you think that they've made a mistake with their approach? Just kind of want to hear a bit more on like what you're thinking about as it relates to the Fed. Well, the Fed's got a great history of fixing problems that they created and then creating even bigger problems. And I think it goes back to COVID and the mass, massive amounts of liquidity they, they injected into the system. I, I think that they could look back and say, yeah, we, we, we probably didn't need to do $4 trillion worth. Um, it created a bubble uh, that they knew that they were gonna create. And now they're you know late uh, raising rates and they mistook the inflationary as being transitory. And truth be told, every time, every inflation is transitory uh, because it always does it, at some point come down. The problem is the sticky parts of inflation, wages, food, um, shelter, those are not coming down as fast. And the Fed can't necessarily use a sniper knife, a rifle and and pick off those little places uh, one by one. They have to go in and um, with a bazooka and shoot everything. So it's going to be a little, a little tough. 
Sorry, I've been dealing with the cold. So um, we all have. Uh, yeah, so every, I, think, I had it last week. <clears throat> and so I'm drinking water on, on this trip. This, but uh, I think that's. Um, I think the Fed will will cut will raise rates um, and then pause and see what happens. To me, I think the market um, really has been overly dependent on central banks uh, to stimulate the markets, add liquidity. I think the markets, it's time for the markets to trade on their own. I know people are rolling their eyes right when I said that. Uh, and and really be more of a capitalistic type of um, market. Uh, there'll be winners, there'll be losers, uh, but you really can't continue to prop up the losers and yeah. that's caused a lot of imbalances that, yeah. you know, maybe 2023 will be the year that we'll see a lot of those companies that have been, you know, feasting on low interest uh, rates um, for their debt that they'll go away. I mean, we're starting to already see companies that are in real trouble. Yeah. A lot of uh, the zombies that are out there and yeah, time for the market exactly. to trade on its own. Do you think, well, let, let me ask you this. Do you think that we will ever get to a point where the, the market will be able to trade on its own? That it won't be so dependent on the Fed? Well, you know, unfortunately the Fed, as much as they say it, um, they're not political. Uh, they are political because a politician um, can you know, install them and also fire them, whoever's in charge. And that's happened in the past. And, you know, I think that the, the, the Fed's policies aren't going to necessarily change that that much. I think they'll come back and do some stimulus, uh, you know, lower rates at least. You know, the, the other thing is, and I don't think a lot of people are really focused on it as much as they should, but they're trying to reduce their balance sheet and their balance sheet's gone from nine trillion, I mean, roughly nine trillion down to eight, six. Um, and the markets, you know, and participants are freaking out saying that the Fed's making a giant mistake. Well, the mistake will be if they don't reduce that balance sheet and then they have to come back for more because the larger that balance sheet gets, the more risk that they're taking on. And you can have a lot of people that will debate me and say, well, you know, that that's fine. They can do as much as they want. Well, it comes to a point where central banks can't do that. And we haven't really seen that occur. And it may not happen with the Fed. It could happen with Bank of Japan because they've got some pretty, you know, extreme balance sheet issues. Um, they have some policies that they haven't changed, even though every central bank in the world has raised rates. They had the cover to do that. They didn't do it. So I think that they're truly at that. That's the central bank that I would say, and bond markets that I would say um, has a rude awakening one day. And I certainly would like to be on vacation without internet that day when that happens. Um, ECB as well. But, you know, yeah. Bank of Japan, I think, is House of Cards. Yeah. Um, and you'd like, you'd like to be on vacation that day. I'd like to be, I'd like to take a vacation. I don't take a lot of vacations, um, but I'd like to be on a vacation, like a month long vacation somewhere, <laughs> no internet uh, when that whole thing blows up and I'll come back and say, 
There okay. you go. Um, I like that approach. You mentioned that um, earnings was going to be a big story next year. Um, what are you looking for as it relates to earnings and um, why is that going to be the story that you'll focus on or one of the stories you'll focus on? I think that the majority of people out there believe we will move into a recession. The debate is whether it's going to be a mild recession or you know, a hard landing, difficult recession, prolonged. I'm probably in the middle of that, but a recession is a recession and you're still at 3.7%, I think 3.7% unemployment. I think unemployment, once it starts moving up, tends to go for a lot longer than people, well, people in this market expect. It tends to move up in years, not necessarily um, in just a quarter or two. I think it's going to take time. Um, regarding uh, just going back with earnings, every time there's a recession, the earnings estimates for the S&P and within the S&P, of course, uh, come down. They really haven't come down. You have several strategists out there that are forecasting the S&P earnings under $2 uh, for uh, next year. They're still at around $230. I've seen one that's at $250 for 2024. I think it's still a little too aggressive to think that there's growth in earnings. This has been a strange market because we've seen a lot, well, the majority of stocks have come down, but you really haven't seen the earnings estimates come down in sync with that. Um, so if we start to see, let's say, here's an example, I'm short Apple. Uh, Apple is not having a good quarter at all. They've got their new iPhone 14, which I can't find for my daughter because she broke hers on the front and back. I can't find one anywhere. There is a limited amount of supply. That's because of what's happening in China. And I think that there's a lot of stories that demand is falling off for their products. The, the problem is um, Apple is, is not down that much off their highs. You still have the majority of analysts out there that are bullish on Apple. And Apple by far is the best company in our lifetime. But still, earnings are earnings, and it's not necessarily trading cheap. And if they come out, which I believe they will, and warn and say, yep, yeah, we had a terrible quarter, uh, iPhone sales were less than what we expected, and they leak stuff out as well. But I don't think they've leaked out enough, and I don't think that they've prepared the market uh, for perhaps uh, something a little bit more dire uh, regarding um, their, their quarter. You've also had, you know, semiconductors have bounced significantly and semiconductors are a really good tell for future economic trends. And I still see the data that we're looking at still shows a lot of supply and uh, of chips out there. And even though that, you know, the supply chains are have loosened up, there's a lot of supply out there. And I think it'll be interesting to see uh, Micron reports this week. Nike reports this week, FedEx reports this week, um, and CarMax reports this week. These are four companies that last quarter, um, and, the, and I like these right before the major earnings for the quarter, because these kind of give you a good example of how trends are. And those companies had massive weak earnings uh, last quarter. So if there's improvement, well, then, you know, we'll see if, if there's not, I think then we're going to see some, you know, real uh, problems out there. 
the banks are having a tough time right now as well. You don't want to own banks going into a recession uh, at all uh, because they have everything. They have investment banking, which has been awful. Um, you have the consumer element of what banks are uh, doing with the consumer. If savings is dropping, which Jamie Dimon is saying that is happening. Loan growth is slowing. Um, the benefit from uh, the higher rates uh, is starting to, you know, maybe top uh, because we've seen the back, uh, you know, rates have, have fallen off uh, the highs. So I think that there's risk in all these different sectors out there. And I mean, I hate to be the, you know, the Mr. You know, downer right ahead of Christmas, but trying to be re realistic. But what will happen is if we get that whoosh down in, let's say, January, that might create a good buying opportunity. And usually when I'm buying, um, it, a lot of people are in panic mode. And, uh, you know, I just think that that's going to that's gonna play out. Right. So when you're ready to buy, it's usually when folks are in panic mode. Um, yeah, I, I've said this. I've said this. You know, it's, you know, those aren't mushroom clouds on the horizon from nuclear bombs. Those are the factories reopening. That's the way I kind of see it when uh, the markets are trying to bottom. Um, but it, it's interesting because again, in March of 2020, we didn't, we were in no man's land. We didn't know what was going to happen with the pandemic. Everything was shutting down. We we're staying home, but all my indicators were kind of saying, you, you've got to buy here. And um, it seemed to, it seemed to work. Um, you know, and I don't necessarily want to say, let's go out and get levered and you know, double up our leverage and get long. But uh, I think there'll be opportunities selectively on the long side. Yeah. And like, when go, just even going back to like the first question, like when I asked you, like, how has this year been for you? This is like your kind of year. Do you think 2023 is kind of shaping up to be another one of like your kind of years where you see like the, it, it kind of fits with like your strategy or your approach? Yeah, I, I you know, I certainly hope so. I, uh, I don't necessarily see any major changes that are going to occur. Uh, I think that there's, you know, I'm working on this thesis of like what could happen and what, you know, the positives and the negatives of what could happen. And I don't necessarily have an overlying positive view uh, created yet. I, I don't know necessarily the, the positives that are going to happen. People talk about China reopening. I, I, I find that to be, um, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm open-minded and I could change my mind uh, immediately. And that's just being flexible has, has been uh, sort of a benefit of this year. But I think the China reopening story is going to be a lot harder than, um, and, and choppier than uh, a lot of the bulls expect. And uh, then again, China's like at war with their tech companies. So that could happen again. Um, so that's a wild card. Hopefully the Russia-Ukraine disaster um, will end. That will be a positive. But, you know, certainly I, I just am open-minded. If my indicators get to a certain level that where I see, okay, I think there's a low risk buying opportunity here. Um, I'm going to, I'll start positioning that way and um, see, you know, see what, what happens. But uh, it, it's, it, it worked well this year and uh, I don't, I don't see any changes. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about a specific idea because it's in the news right now. And that is Tesla, which I know you did mention Tesla and um, you know, would love to hear your thoughts there. Um, Elon Musk with 
Twitter um, and how maybe there's a relationship between that and Tesla stock. Uh, can you share with like what's your latest uh, thought on Tesla? Okay, well, I'm I'm short Tesla, and um, look, it's still five hundred billion dollar market cap, and that's still you know wildly out of sync with um, any rationality when it comes to an automaker. And uh, the the one thing that I will say is uh, before I get into the sideshow of, of Tesla and Elon Musk. I think the main thing that I'm watching right now is demand and demand is going to be and has been the main catalyst that I see uh, for Tesla to go down. And uh, people can say, well, no, the demand's been strong. Demand has not been strong. Um, if you look uh, year over year in Europe and China's had all sorts of problems, um, their, their growth of 50%, I think is going, their projection of 50% is going to be tested. Um, they are adding two new uh, factories into a recession. And that's not necessarily something uh, an automaker uh, wants to do, uh, partly because, uh, you know, they're selling cars that are over $60,000 to start. They're premium cars. Uh, they haven't been updated. Those cars haven't been updated in over five years. And some, the Model S really hasn't been, and X haven't really been updated uh, for even longer. And you have a lot of competition that's hitting the market right now. And they're formidable competition. There's the high end from Porsche, Audi, Mercedes, BMW um, has some beautiful cars. And people like those brands. Uh, they like the brands because they're familiar um, they look generally like the 7 Series BMW or the 4 Series BMW that they have or the Mercedes that they have or the Audi. It, they drive the same way, but they're electric. And I don't think people necessarily need a car that's going to go zero to 60 in two seconds. Um, I like fast cars, but uh, that personally um, at that speed makes me a little nauseous. And it's, I think it's also dangerous and un unnecessary. So you have a lot of cars that are hitting the market. A lot of the Asian uh, manufacturers are hitting the market a lot, a lot. And it's not discussed enough because it's not really known. But in China, the auto uh, manufacturers that are creating uh, EVs um, really are just, you, you wouldn't know how many, uh, you wouldn't know the names, but there's just so many out there. Uh, and so let's talk about Elon Musk and Tesla and Twitter. I mean, it's the it's the gift that keeps giving uh, when Elon Musk uh, does his, um, I guess you could call it uh, unforced errors. You know, he did it with the funding secured and the fake buyout and found himself in trouble. Uh, he's done it now with Twitter, which I think was probably something that was not well thought out, um, to say the least. And He's really become more politically towards the move toward the towards the right, and historically, especially in a California-based uh, company, which they were uh, until last year, uh, that's turned off a lot of the more um, liberal uh, type of consumers that are conscious of the environment. So he continues to make these unforced errors. Twitter. Um, he 
doesn't use Twitter wisely um, as um, compared to what the chairman of the board of Tesla said, Robin said that he uses Twitter wisely. I think he puts his foot in his mouth on just about every typical thing from COVID to promising things that haven't materialized. And speaking of something that hasn't materialized is this full self-driving and it's, it's, level two and level five and i'm like we don't have to go into it level five is where you can get in the passenger seat and it'll drive you around uh, seamlessly uh, level two is what a lot of other automakers have which is directs you through lanes uh does various things stop start um in traffic and um can get you around um but only limited amounts the problem is that he's been selling this since 2016 uh, for a pretty high premium uh, to people that he keeps saying, well, we're in beta, a beta version, and we're testing it, and the next one's going to be great, and we should have it, you know, robo-taxis next year, which never happened. So he's becoming a very untrustworthy type of CEO, and I mean, he has been, um, I shouldn't say becoming... But I think that's a risk, and I think people are catching on to that. And I, I will tell you this, I've heard from politicians, that uh, local politicians, senator here in Connecticut, uh, who I spoke to, and he's very concerned about the false advertising of the full self-driving. So there's a lot of stuff that could just automatically open up Pandora's box and uh, the stock goes down. He's also incredibly levered, and this is another unforced error that a lot of CEOs make, is they lever up their own stock to have their lifestyle or to fund other companies, which he has. Uh, if that all start, if the stock starts to drop significantly, you know, we have a risk of a margin call. And I don't know the exact price, but, um, you know, we've seen it in the past. And uh, if that happens... Uh, there'll be no liquidity in this stock and, um, you know, bad day, real bad day. I have a, a, quick, I have a quick follow on to it just because it's just something I was just thinking about. Because, like, um, sometimes I, mean, I see folks even, like, tweet about Tesla or that they're short Tesla and you kind of see the reaction of other folks. Is it a, a risk that um, for someone who's short that Tesla could become, like, a meme stock, like a GameStop type of situation? Is that something that? is a risk to think about? Well, you know, the last year the stock went up um, and I wasn't short the stock. Thank God I stopped myself out before the gamma squeeze happened and, and it, it went up like crazy. And uh, you know, you just saw this giant bid for options for call options. And there were, you know, someone out there um, that had, you know, $10 million um, each week to blow on out of the money, way out of the money call options that expired like within a week uh, move the stock higher. And yeah, I don't know who that is, but uh, you know, I have my, I suspect there's probably someone that uh, had the most to gain um, if the stock went up that uh, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know who did that. But the stock, the stock also today uh, has very, very few shorts. It has a one day to cover, uh, short ratio, which basically says that, you know, a short squeeze is really not possible. You don't have the shorts in there uh, as you did in the past. And, and this has also been a year that 
um, actually two years that we've seen this short-term call buying or put buying. And so short interest hasn't been really that important. Uh, it's been more when you see heavy put buying. And we've seen some heavy put buying recently for good reason. And, and generally speaking, when people come in and traders, you see this and our data shows that there's heavy put buying. Uh, it's the same as heavy shorts coming in and you have a short term uh, risk of a, of a pop higher. It's the same thing on call buying. When I see heavy call buying on something, it's generally when the stock's already moved and um, those call buyers get um, you know trampled because uh, it runs out of steam. And um, then the dealers who were hedged, uh, their delta, in other words, yeah. uh, they have to hedge themselves. They have to sell stock. Yeah. Uh, so th there's, I don't think that you're going to see a meme stock type of thing at these levels uh, in Tesla. You know, if it goes down to $50, I could see some pretty wild swings and people getting, you know, doing crazy things with it. Um, that's that's possible, but not quite here. Not I don't see that yet. That makes sense. Well, Tom, uh, I feel like I've learned so much from you. This has really flown by for me and I took a ton of notes, but um, it's been really cool watching you build hedge fund telemetry over the years. And I want to pass it back to you because I want to give you a few minutes to let folks know where they can find you, where they can, um, you know, access hedge fund telemetry or, or even kind of give them a little bit of a, a pitch about what you do with he hedge fund telemetry as well. So just take a couple minutes uh, from here. Okay. Well, thank you. And um, it's been a real pleasure uh, being on this with you. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, and I'm very, very proud uh, to see um, what you've done over the years. Um, but hedge fund telemetry, uh, let's just start here. Um, I uh, used to put out uh, as at the $5 billion hedge fund that uh, I was a partner at, uh, I would put out daily and weekly notes um, with technicals, a lot of DeMarc stuff, market sentiment stuff. And I would get ideas and things from all over uh, the street, uh, various brokerages and sell side firms. Uh, and I would condense it all down um, into a, a note. And I'd put that note out every day. Uh, but the way, what uh, sorry, what telemetry is, is it's, I have a love of Formula One cars. And in the early 90s, uh, Formula One cars used to put all these different sensors on everything. And they'd go around the track. And when they go past the pits, all this data would go into the computers. And the people there would like figure it out and say, oh, you know, you, you need to speed up or conserve fuel. Your brakes are too hot, back off, this and that. And so it was the same thing. I got so much information and I tried to condense it down to find an optimal place uh, to invest and positioning. Uh, so I created Hedge Fund Telemetry in 2017 uh, with that same idea. Uh, it started off, um, hey, is there... You know, I was putting out a note to some of my hedge fund friends and someone said, hey, you should do this bigger. And so I put it out on Twitter and I got like so many people that said, sure, I, I want this. And it's turned out and grown into something that I'm so proud of. And it's been a, a joy because I have not only some of the best hedge fund and pension and mutual fund managers, I have uh, brokers um, registered investment advisors. I have individuals uh, that have found me all over the world. And I put out three notes a day. First call comes out around a little before the market opens, gives everybody an idea of what's happening. I have a bunch of charts on there from the S&P. 
uh, NASDAQ to, you know, dollar, Bitcoin, uh, bonds, and it gets everybody up to speed on things. Then I do a midday note that comes out midday uh, that has a lot of trade ideas. And then I have a daily note that comes out a little later. Uh, I put out a trade ideas sheet and it is a model portfolio uh, that um, I two years ago, I started tracking all of the ideas in a portfolio manner, not necessarily just buy or sell, but actual position sizing. And it's done better than I ever could have imagined. It probably won't do as well uh, next year because we're up 52% this year. Uh, again, sizing uh, positions is very important. Educating people is very important. Giving some people a few laughs here and there is also in my way of keeping things light. So if anybody wants to find me, uh, you can find me at Hedge Fund Telemetry. Uh, you can also email me at info at Hedge Fund Telemetry. And since it is the end of the year, we do have an end of the year special for an, our annual rate. Our annual rate for the retail investor is 750. I think you get a lot for it, uh, but you can get 250 off if you use the code 2022, okay? And just do that. If you wanna reach out to me, um, I'll get back to you at, again, info at hedgefundtelemetry.com. Um, but that's, that's it. Remind me, what was the code again? Pro 22, is that right? No, 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 sorry. The code is 2022. It's been a good year. Okay, Co the code is 2022. Yes, when you go to checkout, it says, do you have a discount code? Yes, 2022. I make it very, very easy. Very here, easy, so. yeah. And folks should also follow you on Twitter. You have more than 100,000 followers. I've been following you for a while. Tommy Thornton on Twitter. Uh, so I want to plug that for you. You are oh, a must thanks. follow. I, I think they're all bots except for you. Um, no, come on. You put out some great content, though. Um, well, I try. You know, I try to make people laugh as well. You know, this is life's hard. Sometimes it's good to just have a good laugh here and there. Agreed. And well, seriousness. I do have some serious stuff that I do talk about yeah. as well. Well, thank you so much for teaching us and informing us. And um, again, I learned so much from this conversation with you. Tom Thornton, founder and president of Hedge Fund Telemetry. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you and uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Likewise. Merry Christmas. Take care.